Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. It's Hugh Ballou. It's Tuesday at 2 on the East Coast of the United States. And this is the Nonprofit Exchange. And this is episode 333. We've been doing this for eight years, 333 weekly episodes. And we've had all kind of really great people over the years. Today's is different than we've had before. We have we have some wisdom from uh, the West Coast of the United States, from Washington State. Uh, Carol Bowser is an attorney, and she has some insights on dealing with this thing we call conflict. So Carol, the, uh, the episode name for today is how people unintentionally escalate conflict in your nonprofit. But before we get that, say a little bit about who you are and your background and your passion for this work. So my name is Carol Bowser, as you so graciously introduced me, and I am the president of Conflict Management Strategies, where we help organizations of all different kinds either prevent or address workplace conflict. And you had mentioned that I, uh, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer. I've got the law degree and I practiced employment law for several years. But even before that, I got training in mediation at community mediation centers. Why is that important? Because there are many, many different ilks of mediation. And the one that I was imprinted with talked about people's values, talked about emotion, talked about power dynamics. and really wanted to make sure that when we're mediating the types of things that we're mediating, acknowledge that there was a relationship. And in many cases with my work with in, you know, in the employment sector, there are ongoing relationships. And so I ended up doing that work before I went to law school and it really made all of the difference. And what I really loved about you know, practicing law. I really didn't like practicing law very much um, because I felt as though it got the people who were within the conflict because of the system and the process and the level of expertise you need further and further and further and further and further away from actually crafting a resolution, uh, from being able to speak to what is important to them, being able to make requests directly of each other. So it's that level of kind of disinvolvement, disengagement, disempowerment um, that I didn't like. So I started doing things like teaching and training on conflict resolution skills. And that sense developed into uh, coaching and mentoring and facilitating and mediating and training and spreading the gospel of managing conflict and empowering uh, people through platforms like yours. So that way people are have some tools and tips and techniques to actually approach difficult conversations and have them a little bit more successfully. That takes a little courage, as you say, approach the conversation. And there's no easy way to do this. And we don't have much experience. And actually, I see, and probably I've been part of, I know I've been part of actually causing some things to get unintentional results that they weren't my intended results. Now, do I take ownership with it, and what do I do for it? So let's let's start with ways leaders set up potential conflict without knowing it. Oh goodness, 
How much time do you have? Um, but I think part of it is because I, I, I listened to you know, several of your podcasts before, and you were talking about one of the principles is kind of self-knowledge. But there's also, I think, a, a, a flip side to that, which is self-ownership. It's not just knowledge, but it's also ownership. Uh, about what your values are, how you express those values, what your leadership style is, what you tolerate, what you don't tolerate. And I think leaders, like most everybody, it's it's uncomfortable. It, it feels maybe somewhat dangerous. It feels like there might be a threat in some way. I know that one of your other guests um, recently was talking about kind of sales and like the value proposition. And that resonated with me as well, because I think people in their head do a values proposition calculation of what's the risk to the relationship, what's the risk to me having to invest more time, what's the uh, risk of me getting upset, what's the risk potentially to the organization uh, financially. And we have this values proposition and all of these opportunity costs of like, you know, who, who would have these conversations? Because we're thinking a little bit more kind of long-term. So one of the things that I see with a lot of leaders is they may value harmony, they may value niceness, they may downplay, minimize, placate, and that's not dealing with the concern at all. And I think about it that what makes it uncomfortable, it's some way your body, your psyche, your spirit telling you that this is important and something important is potentially at stake. So I would love it if we actually took the word conflict out of it and just said something important because, um, you know, in it, we want to talk about things that are important to people, you know, in faith communities and nonprofit that are mission driven. Um, those those conversations are vital to engagement and also the ability to create space for differing approaches, differing points of view, um, differing expressions about how our values are exemplified or not within the organization. I mean, that's where we're getting into engagement and people can really talk about what's important to them. It's got to feel safe, doesn't it? It does. Too. I think... Yes, and I don't want to downplay the fact is that if you have like that little nervous energy or something, it means that there's something at risk, um, you know, and, and there are people who are risk tolerant and there are people who are not risk tolerant. Um, but I think it needs to lower the bar enough that people can actually start the conversation and here's a takeaway for the leaders. You need to be able to recognize when someone is trying to test the waters to see if you are actually safe or the environment is actually safe to talk about these things. And that's where I think some leaders um, maybe fail to recognize some of the signs or the clues that people are testing the waters um, and it's it's may not be fair, but they're not going to tell you that they're testing the waters. They're just testing the waters to see how you're going to react. And sometimes it's not for your benefit or the benefit of the organization either as, as they're testing. They also might be testing how you're going to respond and um, if you really mean what you say or how you're going to respond. So you you in your introduction, you talked about power. Yeah. Now, one of the one of the workshops that we do is leading from a position of influence and not power. 
So you you may know or may not know that I spent part of my career, or one of my careers was being a musical conductor. And people perceive the conductor as a dictator. Well, I got to tell you, you got a bunch of mu musicians who are union members, pretty cocky. You got a little white stick. You can't make them do anything, but you can influence them. And it's a very powerful paradigm shift. So how do people, there's the power differential where the leader has power over people, which gets you in trouble, but there's also the boss thing, you know, what I say goes. So there's a lot of misconceptions that really lead us into this conflict. So which of those is the most dangerous as far as escalating conflict? Well, I think first and foremost, not recognizing that there are power dynamics going on. I mean, to your, to your point with the conductor, by the way, I love the fact you have your baton there ready to go at a five, six, good. So um, uh, for example, when I work with um, senior uh, leaders and I will ask them, you know, uh, and I'm thinking specifically of one uh, very kind of larger uh, nonprofit that I worked with and it was the executive leadership meeting. And um, I would say, well, whose meeting is this? And the executive director would say, well, this is the leadership's team meeting. You know, we want to be able to get everyone here to be able to collaborate. But then I looked at the rest of the executive leadership team, like, well, whose meeting is it? And they're like, it's his meeting. He is the highest ranking person in the room. And the person who I find generally says, you know, there really are no power differentials in there generally has the most power. It's either hierarchical power, power of position. Um, as we know within organizations, you know, either uh, if they're nonprofit, maybe a board member, maybe a large contributor, it might be, you know, in, in the clergy, it might be someone who's very vocal on the governing board or a very local, um, very vocal congregation member. There are people who have the ability to be influential and sway opinion. That's power too. Uh, so I always look at it. And one thing going back to my mediation training is there are many, many, many sources of power in the room. Some are recognized and some are unrecognized. And I think leaders, when they fail to recognize that there are power dynamics within the room and they tend to be very, very powerful, that their approach is role modeling either directly or indirectly how it's what's okay and what's not okay to say, what's okay, what's not okay uh, to be able to do. I mean, I think that's, that's dangerous. Yeah, just, and many of us, you know, I'm this dynamic of sibling position. I'm the oldest brother of brothers. You know, that's definitely, I take charge. And I'm not aware of that sometimes until I stop and say, Baloo, cool it. Um, and so it, it, it does take self-awareness, which is um, common sense is very common as the saying goes. So how would a leader begin to understand? Because if you're that power person, people aren't going to talk to you. They're not going to tell you the truth. They're going to tell you what they think you want to hear, right? Potentially, there are there. Let's let's face it. There are some people who are going to tell you exactly what they think, and um, you know there there's and they value that about themselves. They value being direct. They value being honest. They value being candid. Um, and we have to look at some of the folks who aren't going to be that direct. As I said, they're going to be a little bit more subtle. Maybe rather than making big bold statements, they're asking questions. Um, what I find that 
when people are trying to be a little bit more subtle, they're using what Barbara Tannen, um, who wrote the book, or Deborah Tannen, Deborah Tannen, you know, talking nine to five, and the book uh, between mothers and daughters called, and you're wearing that, uh, that she talks about how we tend to use a lot of couching language. Like, hey, I'm wondering if, would it be possible if, I'm curious about, um, would you be willing to consider that all of these things are ways to soften it and to say, hey, you know, kind of uh, make it more kind of curiosity. So they're not making direct statements. They're using, I'm wondering, would it be possible? I'm curious about, or uh, even more subtle ways to be able to talk about things like, hey, have you noticed, you know, what's the guideline on that? Um, hey, I'm wondering, you know, have, has anybody checked in with Carol lately? All of these are ways of saying, hey, there's something going on and I'm trying to, leader, slowly dir direct your attention to it without putting myself on a limb of making a demand or putting myself in kind of um, a, a, a non-negotiable position. What is that called? Oh, an ultimatum, like giving an ultimatum. And because many people don't want to do that. There's so many dynamics at play there. I'm I'm an extrovert, duh. And then we process out here. You just kind of throw things out, expecting people to push back. And introverts process internally. So there are different ways we approach. So talk about escalation. So what you just talked about, and, and many of those phrases did not include the word you. Somebody has an issue and you start with you, we automatically trigger the defense mechanism and people hear us very differently. So yeah. what are the things we say or do that contribute to the escalation of the energy in the room, which is not positive energy? So um, I'm thinking of two different things in particular. One, just like you said, those you statements. And I love how you just went with your finger because it's blaming and shaming and accusatory. And generally, again, going back to my mediation training, we found that when that happens, usually one of two things happens. One, if it's like, oh, no, you didn't, somebody, you'll get our backup, we'll lean into it, and we will go toe to toe. No, you didn't do this. And then the fingers start wagging. And what it does is it gets us into a positional power where we're arguing our perspective, arguing our point of view. And your perspective and my and point of view might be have. And if anyone wants to seal this, that there are elements of accuracy to it. Um, so little, if people want to do a little bit, because th there may indeed be elements of accuracy. Maybe they're calling you on the carpet. Where was it? I was just talking to a client today where someone was saying a deadline was missed. And it wasn't just missed by little, it was missed by a lot. And so the fact that the deadline was missed by a lot is accurate. The fact of who's responsible or who to blame or how it got derailed may be a piece of interpretation. So there may indeed be ele elements that are accurate. And there's a little de-escalation tactic of listening for it. Of Can you say something of, I think there are some things that you are saying are accurate. Notice I didn't use the T word. I didn't say truthful. I said accurate. Um, and so uh, that's it. They even lean in. Or if people are really uncomfortable, they will retreat. And, and they will and they will disengage. And neither one of that is understanding what is going on. And if it doesn't get resolved, it will fester. And little things get added on to little things and get added on to little things and get added on to little things. And then it's a big, hairy mess um, rather than doing something uh, smaller. The other 
so if people want to take take away that take away like you know take take a look for what language your people are using and are they trying to approach you in a more safe and a more subtle way to gain how it is you're doing things and if you start responding or they're responding with you try to figure out what little nuggets you can take away from that to say oh they are really trying to get me to listen they're really trying to help me understand their uh, what they see about this um, another little piece before I kind of move on to the to the second tactic is if you can reframe how it is you view complaints, a complaint, even if it's nasty or yelling or loaded or you're it's like passive aggressive, a complaint is nothing more than a request in disguise. We can respond to requests. So you also so that second part of how people um, escalate stuff, it's Oh, for those listeners who are in the South, bless their hearts, that sometimes we use language that we mean to um, de-escalate things like, you know, get over it. You don't need to worry about this. Just calm down. It's no big deal. But remember, we were talking about that it is a big deal in some way, shape, or form, and minimizing it and minimizing it and minimizing it makes people not feel heard, not feel appreciated, and they lose their confidence in the leader's competence to be able to address, to either recognize or address their concern. You just got a bunch of sound bites, folks. There's a lot of <laughs> useful stuff there you'll see in the transcript. So you talked about approaching people with some questions and opening up conversations. What about difficult responses? You know, people come at you. How do we how do we respond to some of these these issues? Okay. Well, first and foremost, if you are feeling threatened or you're back up against the wall, your stress response is going to start hitting. And what we know about stress is the higher the degree of stress, the less your executive function, ability to empathize, ability to have short-term memory, analytical thinking, integrative thinking, problem solving, collaboration, um, brainstorming, all of that stuff dumps. So if when people are coming at you, uh, you know, if it's a level of intensity, one of the things you can do is just acknowledge the level of intensity and something that's like, wow, you just, and whatever, whatever nomenclature people are comfortable with, you could say, wow, help me understand. This seems really, really important to you. What is it that I'm not getting about this? Um, so you're kind of getting people to dialogue and you're doing a little bit of power balancing, meaning that you're almost putting yourself in a little bit of a one down of willing to, uh, have the possibility that you don't know, understand, or appreciate absolutely everything. And when you're, you know, a nonprofit leader, or, you know, even in, in the clergy, you have a variety of different experiences and you have a variety of different expectations that people have about what you could be doing or what you should be doing. So just being able to kind of it's like, okay, and I think it's it's fair. It's like well, where I think our initial response is like, where is this coming from? You know, and I think that being able to ask that question out loud and get people to talk about it and engage the power of the pause. And if you just let them talk without interrupting, even with really good questions, just let them continue to talk through it until they're done talking. 
And then that will kind of like slowly bring things down. Yeah. Yeah. So embedded in, you didn't say this, but I'm picturing there's a listening element that's really important that we have to demonstrate and actually listen actively. And that's in itself is an affirming piece, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I'll ask people, like, well, at your active listening, they'll say, well, I'm actively listening. Like, and I'll say, what are you actively listening for? I'll let that sink in a little bit. When people say they're actively listening, what are you actively listening for? Um, I think we want to listen for the level of emotion that's there. I think we want to actively listen for what their area of concern is. I think we want to actively listen for, um, you know, what the what's what what might be threatened. I often say that at the core of every conflict, it, it's a conflict of values. People feel their value or their self identity might be threatened or undermined or not supported, and maybe that's something to listen for as well. You know, there's also, and I spoke to you about Bowen, Mary Bowen's family systems theory. And the, one of the eight leadership concert, concepts is triangles. And so I say something to you about somebody that's listening, Daniel. Hi, Daniel. And I say something about Daniel's derogatory. Daniel's not here. So the basic relationship is three people, which is neutral. But I've just taken it. And you talked about passive aggressive behavior. This is one way I talk to you about the third person. So I find that understanding and observing triangles, neither good nor bad, but making sure if there's some odd person out, let's put the triangle together, but let's be aware that there's a missing component to the conversation. And so that sometimes can go south pretty quickly. What do you think? Yeah, I think when we start, you know, blaming and shaming um, other, other people, it can go south and particularly in organizations that are mission-based and, you know, I'm going to just make a little bit of a, of a bold statement here. It's that if outwardly the organization is talking about their mission, their vision and values and how great we treat each other and, you know, what we, the differences we want to make in the community, but inside we're not treating each other with the same type of respect or common courtesy we are expressing out, no bueno. And so if we start talking or shaming or blaming um, people about, about it, that's difficult too. I go back to, well, you know, what is it we were expecting of Daniel or what was it we were expecting of Brian? Um, maybe saying, well, it sounds like, you know, that conversation didn't meet your expectations. What kind of were you expecting for that conversation? Not a, you know, the formula you're in target. So Ms. Spouser, what exactly were you? No, no, no. It's like from a curiosity standpoint of like, well, help me understand what were you expecting from that conversation? How were you expecting him to be able to respond to you? Uh, and then being able to talk about those expectations. And it goes back to your earlier statement of, you know, common knowledge. Well, common knowledge is based on uh, common experience. And we all live very, very different lives. And people may have different experiences and different expectations of what they can do and what they can't do. Um, so to your point of there's generally always somebody else or something else within the conversation um, is accurate. And people may have very, very different views of who that person is or what that person is. I want to, I want to get into, this is a, 
this is a three and a half day seminar we're going to do in 25 minutes there's a lot more to talk talk <laughs> about as you might guess and uh i'm going to show carol's website she's got a lot of really good resources this is a really important topic so um i want to talk about preparing for for conversation but first um we're we're judging people on their words their demeanor most of the there's a lot of 55 percent of the communication is in your face and your emotion and the words come next but judging or, or perceiving or being open to what is their intent where does that play we see how they're coming across but can we give some value to what we think their intentions are i think we can um and it, it's a bit of a two-sided coin because i work with organizations and they in in like their um what I call guidelines or in their operating norms, they say, we're going to assume good intent. And yet, and yet, it's just so hard to be able to do because we have a history and we've been disappointed with them. Yeah. And the other piece about intent, we could be like, what on earth are they trying to accomplish with this? And it could be that they're having a bad day. It could be that they have told this narrative to many people in many different ways and many modalities and are not being heard, um, you know, is it, I view it as in how people act, they are trying to call attention to something that is important to them or something that is disappointing. And sometimes it could be important to them of like, leader, I don't think you're doing your job because you are not holding people accountable. And how do I know you're not holding them accountable? Because if you were, these good, decent people would have changed their behavior. And I'm not sure that that's actually realistic because it assumes, you know, a little bit of, you know, a carrot or, or a stick, like, well, they're really going to want to change their behavior and have what I refer to as kind of a conversion moment of, oh, I totally realized it was something different or that the, or that the per perceived punishment is strong enough that, well, any smart person would change their behavior. And I'm not sure that's entirely true. Uh, and we can still, I think we, the how to uh, look at the intent of asking the question of like, what could be the intent here? What are they trying to accomplish? What are they trying to influence? What are they trying to get me to understand? Um, I think that that is a way uh, to be able to, to try to reset yourself uh, to when someone is coming at you. I will say that one of the things I see over and over again with senior leaders is they they assume that everybody views things the same way that they do. Let me give you an example. It's that we hire someone and they are a great tactician. They are great at getting stuff done. And then we want to promote them to manager. And then we want them to think like a manager, which means ever increasing levels of strategic and integrative thinking. Mm -hmm. And as you go up, you're supposed to be a strategic leader, but that's a different way of thinking of things. And I find that leaders often assume that everyone should have, that views everything the way that they do specifically and how they strategically think. And that's not the case. So they end up becoming disappointed in, in people um, and end up, you know, kind of damaging relationships because people know when their boss is disappointed with them. Yet I ask leaders, it's like, well, you see and hear and do a lot of different things and you're a good strategic thinker, but didn't you hire them to be a tactician? Yeah, intent. 
really clear principles, really clear guidelines, really clear expectations. You know, we we want to blame people for things that we didn't put into place ourselves. So um, we're about to end, but I want to get this one in. Um, we're pre prepping as as a performer, keynote speaker, conductor. We prep before we go on stage. We want to make sure the voice is warmed up and everything. How do we prep? We're we're going into a meeting where we know there's going to be some emotion. It's going to be difficult. Other than the conversations, how do we prep? Other than going and running a 5K race, what's another way we can prep, calm ourselves down for this conversation? So um, it's kind of I kind of one how to calm yourself down. Three how to how to mentally prepare. So one is use the power of the breath, deep belly breaths to you know counteract your stress response and to engage that um, executive function, which you're going to need. So just take, it can just be as short as 12, 10 seconds for a couple of deep breaths. Before that, however, you should be thinking, what do I want people to know as a result of this? What do I want them to do as a result of this? And how do I want them to feel? So think about you and your organization and the microcultures you want to create and go back to the, you know, the mission, the vision, the values of what do I want them to know? What do I want them to do? What do I want them to feel? And I think that would then allow you to organize your thoughts, be clear in what you're expressing. And note that some people may need more detail. That's fine and the action items and what you want people to get out of the meeting. At, at the very front um, of the meeting, start with what the goal is, what the, out, what the outcome is. As a result of this, I want people to do this. So that way you are prepping your audience for what to listen for. That's great advice. I um, I learned managing conflict by teaching middle school for three years. And you know, if you walk in, you're anxious, they can smell it and they go for the juggler. So. Carol, I'm going to come back to you and ask for a closing tip or comment, but um, people go to your website. They can type in their browser, managingconflict.com, managingconflict.com, and it takes them to this gorgeous site. I'm going to show it for people on video. If you're listening on podcasts, you'll have to go to the video, but um, what will people find when they get there? So a couple of things. If you're up there, you can look at the very top right. There is a conflict tip of the day link. Five days of the of the week, I put out a conflict tip of the day, a tip, a trick, a technique, a video, all designed to help people improve their conflict resolution muscles. And a lot of leaders and managers end up sharing it because it's a safe way to start talking about important things. There's also a blog where there are YouTube videos with little clips and there are articles. And then there's also more descriptions about the coaching, the training, the mediating and the facilitating uh, that, that I do. And then again, it all goes back to how do we provide tools and frameworks for people to have important conversations, including how to recognize when someone is trying to have an important conversation with you. Wonderful, wonderful resources. So Carol, what do you want to leave us with today to think about? I say that conflict resolution skills are a superpower that not everybody has been taught and that if it is a superpower that is done deliberately, tenaciously, and here's the one, obviously. I am trying to do this to be able to address this problem. I am trying to do this to be able to show you I'm listening. I am trying to do this to show you that I respect you. I am trying to do this to fulfill my role as a, as a leader. 
Um, and if we make that link to tell people, this is what I am trying to do to support the mission, the vision, the values and support you, that's a superpower that can potentially change the world. Carol Bowser, thank you so much for being my guest today on the Nonprofit Exchange. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.